I will always argue that biblical worldview can be kept pure from an ever-changing Christian worldview, but that is only as true as our ability to read the Bible well. When it comes to our Bibles, we sometimes hear, well, that's just your interpretation. The Bible can be made to say anything you want. You really can't understand the Bible. It's full of contradictions. No one can understand the true meaning of anything that anyone says. This is what the Bible means to me. Have you heard those? So does the Bible have meaning? A true narrative? Why the disagreements? This is where a discussion on hermeneutics becomes important. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview in the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you are 100% comfortable in current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome here. My name is Jeremy Agin. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, we'll be examining the Bible's contents and why people have such a hard time coming to unity. First, we must ask, what even is the Bible? Because the Bible didn't drop out of heaven. It was produced over thousands of years by many different authors who almost exclusively came from one particular people group in ancient Israel. The Bible emerged from the history of God's people and it tells the story of God with Israel at its center. But the main focus is always all of humanity. It is fair to look at the Bible as a little library, a library with different sections, different genres, different points of view, different intentions, and yet somehow, by God's design, it tells a unified narrative. Simple enough, right? Not so fast, says every Christian everywhere. Almost everyone will tell you that you need to interpret it correctly. For some, that will mean taking everything literally, unless you absolutely cannot. For some, it will mean taking everything allegorically, unless you absolutely cannot. And for some, that will mean letting the genre dictate how it's read, and so on and so forth. The fancy word for all of this is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics are a branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation, especially of the Bible or a literary text. I happen to believe the Bible is a literary text, so it's doubly suited. It comes from the name Hermes, the Greek god who served as a messenger for the gods. Question, anybody out there ever have to do research? There is a difference between quantitative research and qualitative research. Quantitative is concerned with discovering facts about social phenomena, uh, assumes a fixed measurable reality, data is collected through measuring things, comparing numbers, reporting stats, creating instruments to measure results, improve facts. Some people will read scripture that way. Qualitative research is concerned with understanding human behavior and the it's all from the informant's perspective. It assumes a dynamic and negotiated reality. Data is collected through participant observation and interviews and themes are discovered and data is reported in the language of the informant. Basically, you have to use your senses to observe the results. And since the Bible isn't just facts and figures, it's people and stories, we have to interpret them as such. I would say a good hermeneutic allows for qualitative study when warranted, which is often 
For example, there are 144,000 Jewish people sealed with a mark on their foreheads in the book of Revelation. Quantitative research would concern itself with the numbers and their tribes. Qualitative research wants to know what is the number symbolic of, what the marks are symbolic of, what the tribes are symbolic of, and what John is trying to say. Why go in different directions? Well, one's assuming that everything is literal, while one assumes everything's symbolic. And neither is a right motive. We should first ask, what is the book of Revelation? What's its genre? Who's it written to? And then decide, should this be taken literally or figuratively, quantitatively or qualitatively? Having a strong hermeneutic means we'll have a literacy-informed interpretation. And when it comes to interpreting scripture, people also practice exegesis or eisegesis, even if they have no idea what either of those terms means. Exegesis starts with ex, like exit, like out. It is the practice of drawing meaning out of scripture, letting it say whatever it must say to us. Eisegesis, ice, iso, singular, I, the reader, put meaning into the scriptures, or more common, I am deciding what I want to preach on first, and then I'll look for a passage I think will support me. Here's a fun example. Let's say I want to teach on the importance of church attendance. I go looking for a place where this is said. Well, that's going to be difficult to find, but I know it must be in there. So I find 2 Chronicles 27, 1 through 2, and I run with it. Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done, but unlike him, he did not enter the temple of the Lord. I see that the king was good, except that he didn't go to the temple. That seems to fit my idea. And then I use the scripture to teach a lesson about passing on good values from generation to generation. The father was a faithful attender, his son was not. Young people are leaving churches in droves. How many blessings are we losing by neglecting the church? You get the idea, right? That's eisegesis. I decided what it meant. Using exegesis in the same passage, it goes very differently. When I read the context of the story, I read the histories of both characters, both Uzziah and Jotham. And I discover that King Uzziah was a good king who actually disobeyed God when he entered the temple and offered incense on the altar, because only the priests were allowed to do this. Uzziah's pride and his contamination of the temple grounds resulted in him getting leprosy until the day he died. Uzziah, according to the law of Moses, spent the rest of his life in isolation. So now the fact that Jotham, his son, did not enter the temple is actually good news. He was not repeating the sin of his father. Do you see the difference? One is the same passage, but one is pushing meaning in and one is pulling meaning out. One is super easy and one requires some work. When it comes to the Bible, we want to ask, what are some general principles of good interpretation? Since the Bible is both a human book and a divine book, we have some implications to consider. Human authors had specific historical audiences, contexts, and purposes, and we should want to know that stuff. Human authors use their own language, writing methods, style of writing, literary forms to affect how we read it. And so we should be aware of that, watchful. 
And then the divine authorship of the Bible gives its unity and its ultimate interpretation should be from God. And we need to depend on that. So what I want to do here is to briefly take a look at how Bible interpretation has evolved and why. The ancient Jewish people were passionate about studying the scriptures. You look at Nehemiah 8.8, 8, um, and you've got Ezra and the Levites reading from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving meaning so the people could understand what was being read. The scribes that followed took great care of copying the scriptures, believing every letter of the text was inspired. So the prose of this view was it was very protected. Uh, they were very protective of every word as they copied, but the con was that the rabbis presupposed that every detail had significance and that the Bible was loaded with secret codes. So by the time of Jesus, Jewish exegesis could be classified into four types. They had literal interpreters, midrashic interpreters, pasher interpreters, and allegorical. So the literal was just a baseline, right? It's just, it is what it is. The Midrash, it came from a rabbi named Hillel, and it was emphasizing the comparison of words or phrases in one text. This typically turns into what we would call liberal because meaning is given without any regard to the context around it. It doesn't let other scripture interpret scripture. For example, Abraham's servant Eleazar's name has a numerical value of 318, and Abraham also had 318 men trained for battle. Thus, Eleazar's service was worth the host of servants. Is that a good interpretation? That's the Midrashic way. Then we have the Pesher way, which is focused really on eschatology. Everything the prophets are talking about has veiled prophetic meaning, and it's everything needs to be attached to the end times. And then you had the allegorical rabbis who said, you know what, these stories shouldn't be taken literally. An example would be Abraham's trek to Palestine would really just be the story of a Stoic philosopher who leaves Chaldea and finds a, a stop at Haran. And Haran means holes. And that signifies the emptiness of knowing things and um, he doesn't have experiences and so when he becomes Abraham he becomes truly enlightened he becomes a philosopher to marry Sarah is to marry abstract wisdom so you can see how people's understanding of scripture was splintered by the time Jesus arrived on the scene now after Jesus left and his followers started writing about him they had a unique way of interpreting the ancient scriptures to be about Jesus 10% of the New Testament is quotes, paraphrases, or allusions from the Old Testament. Of the 39 books of the Old Testament, only nine are not referred to in the New Testament. So there are a considerable, uh, a considerable body of interpretive methods of Jesus and New Testament authors that we can look at that are inspired by God. Something to know is Jesus treats narratives as historical facts. Jesus made 
normative applications from narratives rather than allegorical applications from narratives. Jesus denounced the religious leaders' methods of setting aside God's word by the interpretation of their word. And you know what's interesting? When Jesus is explaining all these things, the scribes never accuse Jesus of wrongful interpretation. He occasionally uses scripture in a way that's unnatural to us. Like when there's a Hebraic or Aramaic idiom or thought pattern and we just don't know how to directly translate it into our culture. An example would be like when he's quoting Jeremiah and Zechariah, but he only cites Jeremiah. Well, that was actually common practice. The second prophet was assumed. The New Testament authors treated narratives as historical facts just like Jesus did. And they also interpreted words in seemingly unnatural ways. And these are good things to keep track of because Jesus only did things correctly. And the apostles were often inspired writers. There is authority behind these tools. Now, after the generation of the apostles passed, the early church uh, widely but not wholly adopted an allegorical interpretation. And that occurred because they desired to read the Old Testament as a Christian book because the disciples had said everything points to Christ, but then it got weird. They just tried to make everything about the church instead of everything about Christ. Here's an example from, the, from Clement of Alexandria. Abraham, when he came to the place which God told him of on the third day, looking up, saw the place afar off. For the first day is that which is constituted by the sight of good things, and the second is the soul's best desire. On the third, the mind perceives spiritual things, the eyes of understanding being opened by the teacher who rose on the third day. The three days may be the mystery of the seal in which God is really believed. It is consequentially afar off that he perceives the place. For the reign of God is hard to attain, which Plato calls the reign of ideas, having learned from Moses that it was the place that contained all things universally. But it is seen by Abraham afar off rightly because of his being in the realms of generations, and he is forthwith initiated by an angel. Thence, says the apostle, now we see through a glass, but then face to face, by those soul pure and incorporeal applications of the intellect." It's a lot of symbols right there where it's just narrative. Origen, after him, believed every detail was symbolic. Augustine, in the 300s to 400s, wrote rules of interpretations, some of which are still used today. He held historical interpretation in high regard, but he also believed scripture had multiple meanings and respected the allegorical process. He believed context was key and unclear passages should not create new doctrine, and the progressive revelation should always be taken into account. He outright rejected literalism, and he believed that the Bible could be interpreted only historically, etiologically, analogically, and allegorically. And that view became the predominant view of the Middle Ages. A group of scholars in Antioch and Syria attempted a way of interpreting using grammatical historical method. They criticized the allegorists for casting doubt on the tales of the Old Testament. And they saw Abraham's journey to Canaan as like a true story of a leap of faith. So all of these principles laid the groundwork for many modern evangelicals. Unfortunately, at that time, that movement was halted by a Nestorius 
um, who was telling a heresy about Jesus. And so they threw out the baby with the bathwater. Skipping ahead to medieval times, little scholarship progressed. They only repeated Augustine. This poem became the rule of thumb. It became called the four sense method. The letter shows us what God and our fathers did. The allegory shows us where our faith is hid. The moral meaning gives us the rules of daily life. The anagogy shows us where we end our strife. So we have literal, typological, morality, and prophetic. So here's an example. The city of Jerusalem. Literally, it's a historic city. Allegorically, it refers to the church. Morally, it indicates the human soul. And anagogically or eschatologically, it points to our heavenly home. What evolved was dogmatic theology, not from the Bible alone, but the Bible plus church tradition. Other pockets emerged from time to time. Some were mystical, some were grammatical, historical. And then Nicholas of Lyra in 1270 reintroduced literal interpretation. He said the fourth sense of the interpretations um, were fine if literal interpretation has hierarchy. He says really the other three strangle the first. Nicholas of Lyra's work impacted reformer Martin Luther profoundly. Some even speculate that without Nick, Martin wouldn't have done anything. So now on to the Reformation. The 14th and 15th centuries were filled with biblical ignorance. Some doctors of divinity hadn't even read the whole Bible. The Renaissance led to interest in discovering the original language to understand the Bible better. And as a Greek and Hebrew Bible became available, people started abandoning the four sense method from Augustine. So Martin Luther, for example, believed that the church should not determine what the scriptures teach, but that scriptures should determine what the church teaches. Basically, he was saying exegesis instead of eisegesis. He also called the allegorical method dirt, scum, obsolete loose rags. Luther said that you must consider the historical, grammatical, and context. And he said scripture's meaning is clear which was, opposite, was, it was directly opposing the Roman Catholic dogma that the scriptures were so obscure that only the church could uncover their true meaning. So now that the Old Testament was stripped of allegorical reasons to make it Christian, Luther explained its relevance in a different way that the Old Testament points to Christ. And this was a return to the way that Jesus and the New Testament authors interpreted scripture. This is not at all to say that none of it is allegorical because some of it is, but it definitely isn't entirely allegorical. One of Luther's biggest hermeneutical principles was distinguishing between law and gospel. When you read something, is it law? Is it God's wrath and judgment and hatred of sin? Or is it gospel, God's love, grace, and salvation? David Zoll wrote a great book on this called Law and Gospel, Theology for Sinners and Saints. Rejection of the law leads to lawlessness. Fusion of the law with gospel leads to heresy, um, the works righteousness heresy. But when identified distinctly, Luther believed that one could rightly interpret scripture. John Calvin agreed with Luther's general principles. Calvin's favorite phrase was scripture interprets scripture. But he parted with Luther on Christ being found in all of Scripture. He just didn't see it. So let's march on quickly into church history. 
post-Reformation, 1500s to 1800s, confessionalism rose to prominence. So the Council of Trent met various times and drew up decrees setting forth this is the dogma of the Roman Catholic Church and most of it just criticized Protestants. And in response, the Protestants began developing creeds to define their position. And at one point, every city had its own favorite creed along with its bitter theological controversies. During this time, exegesis took a backseat to eisegesis where people searched for proof texts for things they already believed. Now, pietism rose as a reaction to this confessional period. Philip Jacob Spiner in the 16 and 1700s is considered the leader of pietism. He wrote a tract called Pious Longings and was calling for the end of needless controversies and a return to mutual Christian concern and good works, increased Bible knowledge, and better discerning pastors. In this Some of this group returned to the grammatical historical way of interpretation and others turned to something called inward light. Next, we get to rationalism, which was a philosophical position that arose to accept a reason as the only authority for determining one person's um, course of action. And that had a profound effect on theology and hermeneutics. But was it all positive? In short order, rationalists joined empiricism in restricting themselves to valid knowledge only can be determined through the five natural senses. They claimed reason, not revelation, was to guide our thinking and actions. Reason alone would judge which parts of the revelation were considered acceptable. This became only things that fit the natural physical laws. Um, Basically, only things that fit the natural physical laws are worthy of faith. Uh oh, you're going to throw out a lot of the Bible then. Then we come to the modern age from the 1800s till today. Rationalism's philosophy laid the groundwork for liberalism in theology. Divine authorship was replaced by human authorship, and suddenly parts of the Bible only have degrees of inspiration. And in some places, in their in their minds, the Bible has become totally uninspired. Say goodbye to sin nature. Say goodbye to damnation, the virgin birth, and sometimes as far as Jesus' atonement for us. Definitely goodbye miracles. Influenced by Darwin and Hegel, the Bible became the record of the evolutionary developments of Israel's consciousness instead of it being God's revelation of himself to mankind. And this supposition greatly influenced Bible interpretation for a long time. Neo-Orthodoxy popped up in the 20th century. It stands somewhere in between liberal and orthodox views of scripture, um, holding to it being God's revelation, but through the fallible telling of human authors. We have the rise of fundamentalism to combat intellectualism that came out of the age of reason. It's all that's all, all kinds of stuff that Phil Vischer has captured so well in his video on that. So people started saying, you can't believe the Bible and hold to evolution. Well, why not? Because Genesis is literal. Well, why is it literal? Because they say it is. Now, if you say it's not, they will question whether you believe in it at all. Yikes. During the last 200 years, there's been, there has continued to be those who interpret scripture as God's perfect revelation of himself. Today, churches operate Bible interpretation all over the spectrum. But this isn't about examining each one and picking which one is best. 
It's about forming a strong one going forward. And I hope we can thoughtfully do that in this series. Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, we'll discuss what we need to consider when interpreting the Bible.